A vocoder is a synthesizer with a microphone attached to it that routes a vocalist's voice through the synth to give shape to the tones it produces. I'd also say that among the many ways one might try turning oneself into a robot, the vocoder is among the least invasive. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music made with vocoders, music made without vocoders, and music made by robots trying to sound like vocoders. Strong Songs is proudly listener-supported, and all of my wonderful listeners make it possible for me to spend weeks learning about the vocoding process so that I can make episodes like the one you're about to listen to. If you want to support me making this show, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs to find out more. On this episode, we have a widely requested song that is commonly associated with the vocoder, even though it doesn't actually use one. It does use similar technology, and boy does it sound cool. Alright, that's enough preamble from me. Let's plug in our robot voices, turn up the reverb, and do this thing. say the words the four chords most musicians immediately know what you're talking about they know that you're not just talking about any four chords some random group of four chords you're talking about the four chords one major to five major to six minor to four major a chord progression so ubiquitous in popular music that it can just be called by the shorthand of the four chords and pretty much everyone will know what you're talking about it's turned up in songs from artists ranging from journey Great John Denver, to the Beatles, who made a wonderful use of it, to Lady Gaga. multiple times I mean Lady Gaga really gets a lot of mileage out of the four chords it was used to great effect by MGMT it was definitely popular in the 80s and featured on a probable future strong song performed by AHA It was even featured in the old Kotaku split-screen podcast theme song. <laughs> that one's definitely as famous as these other examples. It is also turned up on episodes of Strong Songs from time to time, including on our very first Strong Song by Toto. As well as in Let It Go from Frozen. All of those songs rely on the same chord progression. A couple of them put it in a slightly different order, starting on the six instead of starting on the one, but they're all the same four chords. One, five, six minor, four. 
they've been parodied. There's that amazing Axis of Awesome video where they just go through a billion songs that all use the chord progression. It has been done to death. And yet, the four chords haven't died. People keep using them. People keep finding new ways to use that chord progression to write melodies that work, that people like, that resonate with listeners, and create beautiful music. A chord progression is only part of a musical story, and it's only part of a song, and you can do a lot of things with a chord progression, even if it is a very familiar one, like the four chords. You can take a one, a five, a six, and a four, and go in a lot of different interesting directions with it. This episode's strong song is built almost entirely out of the four chords, and yet it is easily the most sonically distinctive song I've ever talked about on this show. It doesn't sound like any other song you've ever heard, and for that reason alone, I think that it's remarkable. Like some of the examples I just played, it's in the key of A, itself a very common key, and those chords in the key of A are A major, E major, F sharp minor, and D major. Let's just take those first two chords. You could play an A major to an E major really straightforward. You could play it like this. Or you could play it like this. The next two chords, F sharp minor to D major, well, you could take those back around to the A major chord like this. Or you could do it like this. What the hell is going on? The dust has only just begun to fall, and it's time for Strong Songs to finally talk about the great Imogen Heap, mistress of music and technology, singer, songwriter, composer, producer, and audio innovator, and her many-voiced, four-chord, digitally harmonized 2005 masterpiece, Hide and Seek. Hide and Seek will be the most stripped-down recording I've ever talked about on this show, and the first time I've talked about a song that is entirely by a solo artist. There is a little bit of overdubbing on this recording, but it's really just Imogen and her digital harmonizer, and that's it. Hide and Seek was featured on Imogen Heap's 2005 solo album, Speak for Yourself, and I actually didn't hear it in the context of that album. I, like a lot of people, first heard it on a TV show called The O.C., now, this song kind of became a meme because there's a really silly and very soapy moment later in the second season of The O.C. where, like, Marissa, this one character, shoots this guy, and then right when she shoots him, the song starts playing again. But that's not the moment that I remember. I think I maybe even stopped watching the show before that moment. The moment that I remember is the first time that the song was introduced. It's during the funeral for a major character, not a beloved character or anything, not someone that the audience was supposed to like, but still a funeral, a somber event. And as the funeral procession begins to pull a Around the corner on the California coast, you hear the opening strains of Hide and Seek. I will never forget the moment that I heard that opening line, that sound, and I just thought, what is that? What the hell? 
is going on. Exactly. And then for this whole extended sequence with very little dialogue, the song just plays and it provides the entire emotional texture for this funeral. And like I said, it wasn't even a character you were supposed to like, but I found myself so moved by what I was watching just because of this beautiful song that sounded like nothing I'd ever heard before. Spin me round again. At this point, the OC had kind of made a name for itself by introducing new bands and new music to people, but this was something different, at least for me. I wasn't that into many of the bands that I heard on that TV show, or most TV shows, but this just, it sounded so unlike anything that I'd heard before. I knew what a vocoder was, I knew what synthesized voice could do, but I'd never heard someone use it the way that Imogen Heap was using it on this recording, and I'd never heard a song just totally remove everything else and purely focus on that sound. I thought it was so cool. I immediately sought out the recording. I looked up her name. I remember thinking, Imogen Heap, what an interesting name. And finding the album and listening to the song, and I just could not get enough of it. So for a number of reasons, this is pretty different than your average Strong Song, and as a result, it's going to be a little bit different than your average Strong Songs episode. I want to tackle this song the same as I usually do. We're going to kind of go through it, talk about the different parts of the song and how they work, but because of the nature of the recording and the nature of what Imogen is doing with this song, it's pretty different than, say, a Bowie song or a Nina Simone song or a Prince song. So I'm going to talk about it a little bit differently. There is no band on this recording. There's no drummer and there's no groove. There's no thump, there's no pop, and there's no sizzle. There are no guitars, there are no horns or wind instruments of any sort. There's just Imogen Heap, her voice, and her digital harmonizer, which she is controlling with a keyboard. That's it. Oily marks appear on walls where pleasure moments hung As I said, Hide and Seek was off of Imogen Heap's 2005 solo album, Speak for Yourself. I had actually heard her before, and a lot of people had. She was one half of the electronica duo Fru Fru, and in 2002, they released the single Let Go, which was featured on the much-vaunted Garden State soundtrack from the Zach Braff movie Garden State, which had a really good soundtrack and introduced people both to the manic pixie dream girl archetype and also to a lot of good bands. Speak for Yourself is a cool record. I've been listening to it a lot while I work on this episode. And one remarkable thing about the album is that nothing else on the album sounds like Hide and Seek. She's experimenting with different sounds, but nothing is quite as out there as that song. Like, this is the opening track off of the album. It's called Headlock. Imogen was also really into looping and layering her voice, and she does a lot of really cool looping and layering on this album. The final track, actually, The Moment I Said It, is another real standout, and it's experimenting with some different stuff. The whole thing is built around this piano part that I love. And 
And then as the song progresses, she starts layering on her vocals in a way that you can imagine her doing with a live looping setup, which she definitely did. Um, she does all kinds of cool stuff live with looping her voice and layering it so that in real time on stage, she can create these vocal soundscapes that sound like something she would have made in the studio. so many points on the album there's just this sense of her as this relentless innovator which of course she is she would go on after this album to do all kinds of development work with really cool music technology coming up with new ways of playing music on stage and being able to express herself musically using electronic effects without being limited by the traditional control methods for electronic music and electronic effects which is definitely something that you can also sense when you listen to hide and seek even in the context of all of the rest of the songs on the album and all of the questing that she's doing, Hide and Seek sounds really different. I mean, you're listening to these fairly straightforward songs, and then this song comes on that just doesn't sound like anything else on the album. And also, if you're me, doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard before. Where? So let's start there. Let's start with that sound, that digital harmonizer, that magical, robotic, angelic chorus, and uh, and talk about how Imogen got that sound. So she describes playing around with a Digitech vocalist workstation, and that's the actual name of the tool, the sort of synthesizer vocoding tool that was used to make this sound. I don't think that it's technically a vocoder, and if you want to know more about vocoders, there's actually a really interesting story there. They weren't developed as musical instruments. The first vocoder was developed in the 1920s by a guy at Bell Labs named Homer Dudley. He was trying to come up with a way to reduce the amount of information in a vocal signal so that it could travel farther for telecommunications, but it made the voice sound like a robot, and so they never really used it. And then it got picked up by musicians in the 1970s and onward because it's such a cool effect. The audio company Isotope actually has a pretty useful breakdown of the vocoder that I'll link to in the show notes. For Hide and Seek, Imogen Heap was using the vocoder setting on her Digitech vocalist workstation. Kind of a fine distinction, but it explains why Hide and Seek sounds the way that it does. Digitech makes a vocalist workstation that's similar to something that a lot of other companies make these days. You can get those made by Boss, you can get custom boutique ones for a lot of money, and usually a vocalist workstation is like a multi-effects unit, either a rack unit or sometimes a pedal, usually a rack unit, that you can control with MIDI pedals, and it does all kinds of vocal processing. That might mean reverb or delay or EQ and compression, or it might mean more advanced processing like harmonizing or pitch correction. The Digitech one and the one that Boss makes is actually just like a box. It looks like a little mixing board. It has some faders on it and it has a MIDI input and a MIDI output. And those are kind of the keys for understanding how the whole thing works. So Digitech is known for making harmonizing pedals and harmonizing effects units. They make a lot of different stuff, but that's kind of always what they've been known for. One of their flagship products is called the Whammy Pedal, which you've maybe heard of. And uh, I've certainly talked about Whammy Bars on Strong Songs, but I've never really talked about the Whammy Pedal. What the Whammy Pedal does is it takes a signal, usually a guitar signal, and it's a pedal, just like a wah-wah pedal or a volume pedal that you move with your foot. But it takes your signal and it actually shifts the pitch that you're playing. So you start really low and then you go really high. You can also reverse it so that it drops your pitch really low when you press the pedal down. It's kind of the most basic type of pitch adjustment is just it takes your pitch and it moves it up or it moves it down depending on how much you move the pedal. One good example of that is the edges tone on a U2's Even Better Than The Real Thing. The guitar riff that he plays at the very beginning is heavily reliant on a Digitech whammy pedal and I believe he actually uses the Digitech 
Digitech Whammy pedal. So he's using this to get this kind of an octave jump sound that you hear here. That's off of Actung Baby from 1991, and man, if you want to hear some really cool guitar stuff, check that album out. I know people have sort of mixed opinions about U2, but The Edge is amazing, and that album, the guitar soundscapes that he comes up with on that album are amazing, and he definitely got a lot of use out of the Digitech Whammy pedal. It's the most basic example of pitch bending, and specifically Digitech's brand of pitch manipulation, and the crucial thing is that you don't have to just use this on guitar or instruments, you can also use this on your voice. A lot of recording software includes pitch manipulation and pitch bending software, and um, I'm actually going to start using it right now to slowly raise the pitch of my voice and uh, keep talking until I'm in a very, very high chipmunk voice, and then I'm going to slowly lower it, and it's going to get lower and lower and lower until I sound like something that crawled out of the depths of the ocean. So that's basic pitch bending. It's really fun. You can do a lot of cool stuff with it. And it's the basis for what Imogen Heap is doing on Hide and Seek. The takeover, the sweeping insensitivity. So it stands to reason that if you can take a pitch and manipulate it into any other pitch, you can also harmonize with that pitch, and rather than just totally replacing the initial pitch with something higher or something lower, you can play a simultaneous pitch that's higher or lower set to some interval. And Digitech also makes harmonizer pedals, lots of companies do, and those do basically that. A lot of times they're used by guitar players who want to play a line and then hit the harmonizer pedal and immediately have a simultaneous line playing at the same time, like a third above it or fourth above it. It's possible to mix it so that you're hearing both my voice and the harmonized pitch, which you're actually hearing right now. This is a 50-50 mix between my voice and a pitch that is a fourth above my voice. And now I'll shift it up to be a fifth above my voice. And now it is a fifth above my voice and everything that I do, if I sing a note, ba, ba, ba. I'm singing in harmony magically via the power of music technology. So you can probably sense how we're starting to circle in and get a little bit closer to what Imogen is doing on Hide and Seek. We've gone from taking a tone and then using technology to completely shift the pitch and make it a different pitch to using a harmonizer to create harmony, harmony that, that moves, moves along, along with, with the pitch, pitch in, in a certain, certain interval and mixes with, with the original signal to create a kind of a doubling signal or tripling or quadrupling. Now it's time to take the same principles and plug in a MIDI keyboard and use that to be able to really create fully textured harmonies that move along with the chords of a song according to what we're playing on the keyboard, which is how Imogen Heap is able to make it sound like a full choir is singing through a vocal arrangement of Hide and Seek that moves through all of her lush and interesting chord voicings for the song. It doesn't just follow along and sing an octave or a fifth above or below her. It's actually a full choir that's governed by what her fingers are doing on the piano and it's a pretty cool effect mm, what you say mm, that you only meant well well cause you did mm, what you say mm, that it's all for the best because
The implementation of the MIDI keyboard is the final piece of this puzzle, and that's really the thing that allows Imogen to do with her voice what she's doing on Hide and Seek. So MIDI stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. It's basically just a language that instruments use to talk to one another, uh, digital instruments use to talk to one another. It's how a sampler knows which notes to play. It's how synthesizers know which notes they should play. It's sort of a variety of parameters, you know, note and duration and length, and also you can have custom knobs and all kinds of things in a modern digital recording studio use MIDI to communicate in a variety of ways. It's the thing that allows all of your devices to talk to one another, and it's the thing that allows Imogen Heap's MIDI keyboard, which looks like a piano keyboard, to talk to her digital harmonizer and on the fly change how it's harmonizing the notes that are coming into it to correspond to the chords that she's playing on the piano. So, as we do on Strong Songs, I'm going to try to recreate for you the opening verse of Hide and Seek, though it's a different kind of recreation. It's going to require me to sing a little bit. I'm not as good of a singer as Imogen Heap, but I think I can kind of get pretty close and it'll at least give you a sense of what she's doing and how it works. So let's listen to that opening verse in full and just try to listen, just, you know, take it all in. Hear her voice there in the middle as she sings and then hear the harmonizer kind of enveloping her and supporting her voice. It kind of surrounds her and comes in below and you can hear the harmonizer moving more like a keyboard as her fingers move around on the piano and change the harmonies that are accompanying the melodies that she's singing. Okay, here we go. What the hell is going on? Dust has only just begun to fall. Crop circles in the carpet, sinking, feeling. All right, so let's start with that opening line, where are we? And I'm going to sing this and put a little bit of vocal processing on it, so we'll have some reverb, some slightly different compression, and it'll sound like this. Where are we? All right, we can work with it. So I'm going to be using a Logic plugin called the Evoc 20 Polysynth that has a vocoder feature. This is not the same thing that Imogen used. It's not going to sound exactly like her, but it will let me do what she is doing on this recording. So for starters, let me just play one note along with what I'm singing so you can kind of get a sense of where the vocoder sits. So that melody that I sang is an A to a G sharp like this. So I'm going to take that vocal track that I already recorded singing those notes and I'm going to run it into the vocoder using what's called a sidechain so that the vocoder is triggered by the input of that audio signal. And then on the vocoder track, I'm going to finger up a third. So I'm just going to play the C sharp to a B, which will sound like this. All right, here we go. pretty nice. So if we take what I'm hearing as the complete piano part and just play it back on a piano, this is a MIDI controlled piano, so this is still the same MIDI information that I'm going to be using on the vocoder. I'm just putting it on the piano track. This is what it sounds like. So let's put all of those notes into the vocoder while I'm singing that note on top, and let's see what that sounds like. Wow. 
All right, so we're getting somewhere, but it doesn't quite sound as rich and full as Imogen sounds. And that's because she's actually doing, I think anyways, a fair amount of multi-tracking. And the mix and production on this are both a little bit more involved than they may seem. I don't think that she's just sitting there at the keyboard singing and they did this whole thing in one take. There's there's more going on, and that's certainly evidenced later in the recording, which we'll talk about. But even at the beginning, I just kind of hear it might be that she's multi-tracked her vocal parts a little bit and is using different layered vocal harmonies to trigger different harmonizers and layering those. It could be that she's just triggering different instances of the harmonizer and then overlapping them. Or it could just be that her harmonizer works a little bit differently than mine and she's able to do this just in one take. I mean, that is totally possible. Let's listen to her on that phrase and you'll hear the richness I'm talking about. There's really a lot going on in this take. If you're listening very closely, you can hear that the lower octaves over on the right, the higher octaves over on the left, there could be some double tracks. There's also a nice little subtle delay, an echo that comes in in the space after the phrase right here. It's that very subtle kind of delay that you wouldn't notice unless you really had your ears on for it, but it adds a bit of atmosphere to the overall recording, and she uses delay really cleverly throughout this recording, but that I think is running throughout. It's not on all the time. I don't think it's just echoing everything she does. It's like the ends of those phrases just trail off into the silence, which makes the silence feel a little bit bigger and more spacious. I think they have it set so that the delay just turns on for the word we, because you don't hear a delay of where are, you just hear that we kind of bouncing away into the distance. It's a nice way to use delay. You bypass the delay uh, until just the word that you want to trigger the delay and to start bouncing so that you're not just getting a constant bounce back on everything that you're singing. You're only getting certain words carried on. Let's see if we can recreate it in my vocal track. Where are we? All right, we've got the delay in. Now I'm just going to take the vocoder track and I'm going to replicate it a few times. I'm going to put the lower octaves over on the right. I'm going to put the higher octaves over on the left. And I'm going to kind of just broaden the whole thing out so we get a fuller sound. All right, that sounds pretty good. So let's keep going. Here is what the piano will be playing on the rest of that phrase. Right here goes nothing. What the hell is going on? All right, so I hope you're getting a sense of how I'm doing this. Let's go through the rest of the phrase. The piano part is currently playing underneath me, and we'll talk about the harmony in a moment, but I just want you to hear how this all comes together, how the piano part that you're currently hearing on a piano is instead input into the vocoder while I sing a single note melody, but that melody provides the texture and the attack and the delivery for the synthesizer to then replicate it and turn it into spread harmony that match up with what I'm playing with my fingers on the keyboard. All right, here's my entire recreation of the first verse of Hide and Seek.
that's pretty much that. That's how it works. That's how she is able to get that sound. And like I said, I think she's doing some subtle and less subtle stuff, adding delay, doing some multi-tracking, possibly even overdubbing some original vocal takes to get a bigger and also a more distinct sound. You can hear her individual parts more distinctly. And there's also the fact that I'm using, you know, one vocoder and she's using a very different instrument to make the sound. But the fundamentals are there and that's how she's doing it. It's a really cool sound and while you'll hear this kind of harmonizing and vocoding on other tracks, I haven't heard too many songs that purely use it as a means to create the entire sonic texture of the song. The dust has only just begun to fall. So enough about the technology, let's talk a little bit more about the harmony of this song, because the harmonizer and the way that she's making those sounds, that's certainly the key, it's kind of the heart of this song, but we're way into the episode and we haven't even really talked about much beyond the first verse, and there's actually some cool harmonic stuff going on in this song as well. So the thing about the four chords is that they offer you a lot of space to work. They're they're pretty neutral sounding, and they have mostly tones in common with one another, which means that if you're playing from A major to E major to F sharp minor to D major, you can kind of just build melodies out of an A major scale, and depending on which notes you linger on and which notes you emphasize, you can get some nice little sparks of tension, some nice little bits of flavor in an otherwise fairly neutral chord progression. So let me show you practically what I'm talking about. At the beginning of Hide and Seek, Imogen sings from an A major chord to an E major chord, and these are very inside, and her melody just goes from an A, which is the one in A major, down to a G sharp, which is the third in E major. So those are both chord tones. It's really neutral. This is a very neutral way to begin the song. However, her third chord sounds a little bit different, and you can probably hear it when you're listening to the recording, even if you're not totally sure what you're hearing. That F-sharp minor chord, there's something else going on there. What the hell? Do you hear how it's just a little bit thicker? It feels a little bit like the notes are rubbing together a little bit more closely than they did at the very beginning, and that's because of what she's singing in the melody. The note that she's singing in the melody there is a G-sharp, which is actually the ninth for that F-sharp minor chord. The ninth or the second, which is not a main primary chord tone, it's not a one, a three, or a five, it's a nine, and that makes this an F-sharp minor nine chord, which is a just more complex sounding chord than if it were just an F-sharp minor. Because she's totally in control of the arrangement, because she's just playing piano along with herself while she sings, and that's governing what the harmonizer is doing, she's able to use some pretty non-traditional chord voicings. Uh, this is one. It's, it's not non-traditional. I guess it's not super weird, but it's not just an F-sharp minor chord. She's putting the root and the second right next to each other in the middle of the chord voicing. So an F-sharp and a G-sharp, a whole step apart, which is just a little bit tense. It sounds like this on its own. And when she sings it, you can hear that tension in the way that the full ensemble sounds. What the hell? She does that kind of thing throughout this arrangement, and there are some really cool examples of it that we'll get to. So while she is moving through the four chords, she's actually voicing the chords differently every single time she goes through them. And as a result, it's actually a pretty dense and ever-changing chord progression, even though the basics, A to E to F sharp to D, remain the same. Is going on. The dust has only just 
The more I listen to it, the more I start to pick out these individual lines that are moving like vocalists in a choral ensemble, only, you know, they're just represented by one of Imogen Heap's fingers. Uh, there's one here that I really like that moves slowly up as she moves up to that A, to the E, and then to the F sharp. It's kind of over on your right, and it sticks out from the rest of the mix. I'll play piano along with it so that you can hear it. Dust has Her breathing is so clear on this track. There's a lot of breath on this in general, and a lot of breath sounds too. There's this sample train sound that sort of plays in the background sometimes, and I'm not sure if that's what I'm hearing here at the end of this phrase, but there's a sound that sounds like a breath, but it could also be like a steam engine. It just has this really cool breathy sound. It fades in right near the end of the phrase. Listen for it. Sinking, feeling. Right at the end of that phrase, do you hear this kind of high sound that just works its way in as she's holding that chord? I don't actually know what that is or if it's breathing, but it sounds like breathing and it adds a sense of aliveness to the recording. The second verse follows the same melody as the first verse, but the chords do some slightly different things, uh, adding some of those points of tension like the ones in that first verse. Spin me round again and rub my eyes this crowd be this verse makes great use of the note B. There are a couple of really cool Bs in there. When she sings My Eyes, she lands on an A chord, but she's got a B going in the harmony, which turns it into a kind of a A add nine or A major nine chord. It's right here. You hear that? There's this kind of rub with that B. It just comes out, it pops out kind of over in the right channel. This whole recording is thick with that kind of thing. There's another B in this verse, like I mentioned, when she gets to the D chord the second time. She plays it like a D6 chord with a B in there, which again just sort of thickens up, richens up that D major chord. You hear it in there? That B, it really just adds a nice little texture. So hopefully by now I've got you kind of attuned to all of the subtleties of this recording. Here we're setting up the first chorus, and as she does that, she adds some delay again, and it's much more noticeable this time. It sort of creates this spacious drift that sets up the first chorus. And that first chorus is very delicate and very spacious. Chains and sewing machines. 
So the space is the first thing that I notice about this chorus. She just leaves so much space in between each sung line. It's pretty remarkable. You can really just feel the song breathing. She's also changing the voicings of the chords and adding some more nice little tensions and extra harmonic information to sort of change up the way that this chorus sounds. So we're still going from an A to an E to an F sharp on these first three chords, but the quality of each of those chords is a little bit different than just A major to E major to F sharp minor. Listen one time and then I'll break down what's going on harmonically. So what I'm hearing there is kind of an A add 9, which adds that B and gives a little bit of a rub there, to an E major 7 over G sharp, which sounds like this. And she's put the E and the D sharp, which is the major 7th, the 1 and the major 7th are right next to each other, which creates a half step, very dissonant sound, and that makes for this nice kind of tight rub in that E major 7 over G sharp chord. That D sharp is also outside of the key of A major, which is the first time she's introduced something outside of the key of A major, and there's going to be a really important D sharp in just a couple of chords. Then the final chord is an F sharp minor 7th, so it's an F sharp minor triad with a 7th on top, which is an E, and that's a kind of nice open, not super dissonant sound that provides a nice resolution to the line. Here's what those three chords sound like just on piano. Now listen to Imogen sing them with her harmonizer. The next two chords actually go from D to F sharp, so she's changing up the order of the chord. She's not exactly doing the four chords, though she's still using the four chords. So the first chord of this next phrase is actually a D major 9, which goes up to the 9 and also has a major 7th, that then just goes down to a D, with again a kind of rub between the major 7th and the root. There's that half step between the C sharp and the D, and then this phrase ends on an F sharp minor again. Listen to her sing that part. The second half of the chorus follows pretty much the same chord progression as the first half of the chorus, but she does something super beautiful here and actually steps outside of the four chords for the first time in this song in a really cool way. Check this out. Man, that that part just gives me chills. She sings all those years, and there's so much going on here that's so cool. This delivery, this little two-second part of the song is one of the most beautiful parts of the song. For starters, there's just her voice. You can really hear the sound of her voice as it is making notes, and she even holds a kind of a breath sound at the end. At the end of her phrase... It's extremely intimate in a way that only this stripped down of a recording can be. We can hear every tiny little sound, including her lingering breath after she stops singing, but air is still passing across her vocal folds. She's singing so high, and the voicings on the keyboard are also so high that it's all very delicate, and she's moving through some really cool chords. This first chord is another kind of A sus2, A add 9 over E, that then goes to this big E cluster chord that sounds like this, that then resolves to a B9, a B7 chord, which is outside of the four chords, and has a D sharp, which is actually outside of the key of A, and leads to an F sharp minor. 
It's a distinct departure, and it gives this part of the song a feeling of departure. It feels like you lift off into this new place, and that's partly because she's playing a chord that she's never played before, this B7 chord. When I played on the piano, listen, it sounds like this. And now listen to her sing it and pay attention for that. Listen to how it just sort of steps outside of where we've been and goes to somewhere slightly different before returning to the F sharp minor. It's so, so, so cool because of its delicacy, because it's so high and so light, and then it just steps slightly outside. It's so good. The end phrase of this chorus is just another D major 9 walking down in the same way, only this time it ends on an E sus, which is setting up the next verse. Hide and seek, trains and sewing machines, all those years, they were here first. Imogen has never explicitly said what this song is about. It's sort of understood to be about her parents separating. To me, it has a very abstract quality, and that actually makes it feel kind of universal. It just recalls someone sitting and looking around an empty room, almost like you would if you were playing hide and seek or remembering playing hide and seek, because a thing you'll notice if you ever play hide and seek in your house is that it forces you to kind of sit in places where you don't normally and you're alone when you're hiding and you're waiting for someone. So maybe you're sitting, you know, behind the bed in the guest room of your parents' house or something and you just notice little details about the room or about the space you're in that you wouldn't have noticed before. And when I hear these lyrics crop circles in the carpet, oily spots on walls, it's kind of this memory of a place and of a time that's lost. There's a really profound sadness to this song. And even though I don't know specifically what it's about, for me it's just about someone who is alone reflecting on the people who've left them and on that loss. And this chorus certainly captures that. It feels so quiet and thoughtful and alone and so very, very sad. Orchestration is all about working with contrast, and some of the best orchestration and the best contrast in this whole piece takes place after that first chorus, that so delicate, vulnerable first chorus, as she comes into the second verse strong with thick chords in this really powerful build that moves from the quiet rumination of the chorus into more of a mood of bitter regret. Check out this build as it starts so quiet and so quickly and smoothly builds into something ferocious. Sweeping and 
sensitivity of this still life. It's an incredible verse. It builds toward that dense, strange, and extended final chord. It's also where Imogen's singing comes out a little bit, and she starts to get up into her belt and really pushes it from the E up to the C sharp there. And you can hear her vocal performance. There's this intensity to how she's singing that increases the intensity of the harmonizer that's working underneath her, since it's going off of what she's singing to create more intense sounds to accompany her. That's a cover. You can hear her jump into her head voice there. She's really up in her chest. The takeover. That's a dramatic jump any way that you slice it, but particularly dramatic when you're jumping from a big kind of strong place in your chest voice up to a much more delicate place in your head voice. The takeover. Now she's still going through the four chords throughout this verse, just like she did in the first two verses. However, she's stretching them out and rephrasing them to match her vocal phrasing, which again, it's something she can do because she is in complete control of the ensemble. The ensemble is just her singing and then the harmonizer that's controlled by her. So she can phrase it and stretch out the phrasing however she wants, which lets her do things like the second half of this phrase, which is stretched out and moves through the four chords a couple of times, but in a really interesting and different way. The sweeping insensitivity of this still Those three chords are an E to an F sharp minor to a D, but she stretches them out and gradually just densifies them so that they become more and more dense until that final D major chord is really just this super thick D major chord with a nine and a major seventh that she lets just linger and drop away. This is a sort of a held chord. The time drops away. And then she does this really cool filter effect on the very end of the note that just sort of swallows the entire ensemble. That whole verse feels like an anguished cry after the quiet sort of inner despair of the first chorus. It's a dramatic shift for the song, and it sets up the second chorus really beautifully. The second chorus adds some new layers while turning back inward. So listen to that whole verse into the second chorus. Here we go. Oily marks appear on walls where pleasure Hung before the takeover, the sweeping insensitivity of this still
<laughs> that second chorus is a real emotional journey. So it starts out very small in the same way that it started out the first time with that little move up to the major seventh chord. But then she introduces the first very clear overdub, and this is where she has recorded a second vocal take on top of the primary one. So the main lyric is trains and sewing machines, but then there's a second lyric that sings, "Oh, you won't catch me around here." Trains it's so striking because it's such a contrast to everything leading up to this point. The narrator has been talking, you know, kind of to herself. That's the sense that I get anyway. It's someone looking around and talking to herself. And when we talk to ourselves, we don't always talk to ourselves in a single voice. And you can see at this moment in the second chorus, she's looking around trains and sewing machines, looking at her memories. But then this other thought makes its way in. You won't catch me around here. This sort of more angry, dismissive thought. And it feels like the narrator's mind has split into multiple thoughts at the same time. That actually continues right after this phrase. There's another nice little echo, just a sigh that comes in after the primary lyric. On the lyric, Blood and Tears, she pushes it so high and closes off her voice at this extremely high pitch, and then this very light sigh comes in, almost like a release valve. There's also this nice ping-pongy pan effect where that high sigh starts in the left and then goes to the right. It wouldn't be that dramatic of a thing to overdub a vocal part on top of another one. I mean, pop songs do that all the time. But because this song is so minimalist in so many ways and hasn't done anything like that up to this point, when the narrator splits into two voices, it's a really dramatic effect. And even if you don't know that that's what you're hearing, which is pretty understandable given how many voices are already kind of playing thanks to the harmonizer, it still feels like something different has happened here compared to the first chorus and compared to the rest of the song leading up to it, which then leads perfectly into this build into the dramatic, climactic final refrain. That second chorus in total is a pivotal part of the song. It introduces a second voice, it complexifies the narrative, and it builds into the climactic final verse. Let's listen to that chorus in its entirety, and all right, let's get into the mm, what you say part of this song, the confrontation between the narrator and the person she is addressing, and the climax of the song. Say mm, that it's all for the best because it is. 
is. There's so much power in this part of the song, and I think that's because she is clearly overdubbing at this point. I think she just has multiple vocal tracks going, so that her voice alone just sounds a lot bigger. And then the harmonizer, of course, makes it sound massive. You can hear it in the breaths if you just listen for the breathing. You can hear her breathing in multiple different places, and then as the verse progresses, the voices begin to split apart, and there are actual counter melodies that begin to enter. So this is actually new harmony. She's still using the four chords, but they're moving in a different order. This part starts on a four. It starts on a D chord, then it resolves to A. Then it does a sort of walk down from F sharp minor to E and then back to D. So it's D, A, F sharp, E, the same four chords, but in a different order, and that different order creates a really different energy for this part of the song. What you say? And then just as it reaches full tilt, the arrangement scales dramatically back for the outro. This final section is so delicate, but also so complex. There are multiple vocal tracks going on, they're passing the baton between one another, and when she's not singing lead on one part, she's actually breathing in time, and you can hear these moments of breath that move in time with the music. I mean, that is delicate, beautiful stuff. You hear all of those little details that were all carefully put in there to create this intimacy and this sense of bounce and flow and space. I think something remarkable about Imogen Heap as an electronic music artist is that she never gets lost amid all of the effects and the sounds and the technology that she's using. She's very interested in bringing the humanity through using these tools. She's actually worked on the development of some really cool musical tools in the years since she released Speak for Yourself, and one of the most notable of those is the Mimu gloves, which are these gloves that she developed that let her control music in this beautiful way where she can move her hands around on stage while either just standing and singing or sitting at the piano, and it allows her to create music so organically, controlling synths and filters and loops, but doing it in a way that allows her to remain the central energy of the music and not to get lost in all the technology. She gave a TEDx talk about the development of the Mimu gloves, and she said something that I thought was really interesting and feels like it kind of encapsulates her view of how electronics apply to how she makes music. So at that, at that moment, I realized actually what I wasn't looking for was control. I was looking for freedom. I was looking for this, this ability to just explore electronic music in a place where I'd never been able to before because everything is very much in boxes and lines and it's very formatted. And I wanted to be able to play music the same way that I can sing and improvise, um, but kind of drawing the creatures out of the software in the computer and not always be hunched over. 
She wasn't looking for control, she was looking for freedom, and that distinction tells me so much about how Imogen Heap thinks of music. Technology, be it the Mimu gloves or a Digitech harmonizer, is just a means to an end, is a way to free yourself up to be able to, as she puts it, draw the creatures out of the software. I love that, and I think that really explains why you can always hear her on this track, and I think that she is the thing that really makes it all work. Her breath, her voice, you can hear her physical presence, even amid all of the fancy digital harmony and the cool robotic choir, she's always the thing that ties it together, and on this ending, she's the thing that brings it home. And into that delicate vocal swirl, Imogen adds one last vocal layer to bring us to the end. Every art form has its familiar tricks, its tropes and cliches. Every art form has some version of the four chords. Great artists use familiar methods like that to achieve unique results, and with Hide and Seek, Imogen Heap took the most familiar four chords in pop music and turned them into something else. Something that pulls the creatures out while it pulls the listener in. Something magical. Something spacious. Something haunting and something beautiful. And that'll do it for my analysis of Imogen Heap's Hide and Seek, a wonderful and very different song that was a lot of fun to pick apart for you on this episode. I hope that you liked this episode. I hope you're liking year three so far. Thank you so much to all of my patrons, the people who support me making this show. I put a lot of work into this show and I make it all by myself. So if you want to help me do that and make more episodes of Strong Songs, go to patreon.com slash strong songs to find out more. If you haven't ordered anything yet from the Strong Song store, well, you should. We have some pretty fun merch. There's a link for that down in the show notes, along with links for social media, newsletter, that kind of thing. Thanks to everyone who's been writing in here in year three. It's really nice to hear from listeners. A lot of you are super kind, and you always tell me how you're spreading the word, which is also really cool to hear. And I love to hear from families that listen together. There are so many of you who listen with your children and family members. You can email me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com and send in some questions. I'm going to be doing a Q&A episode, not next time, but the time after that, and we'll be doing more Q&A episodes in year three. This episode's outro soloist is an old and dear friend of mine, Mr. Eric Elligers on the tenor saxophone. Eric's a multi-instrumentalist out in Connecticut, and he has a great band called Goodnight Blue Moon that you should check out. So stick around for Eric, and I'll see you in two weeks with yet another strong song. (laughs) 